is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast, where I am your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I have a very special guest with us today a principal based in Camden, New Jersey, by the name of Dr. William Hayes. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hayes. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Yes, indeed, indeed. So we'll go ahead and just jump right on in. I asked Dr. Hayes to be on this show. I participated in a webinar where Dr. Hayes was on the panel along with some other educators and scholars, and I was very impressed with Dr. Hayes. I thought that the work that he's doing with his young people at his school was worth having a deeper conversation. So I asked him to be on this show and we are excited to have him on. So Dr. Hayes, again, welcome. And can you just start us off with introducing yourself? Maybe tell us who you are, what your role is right now, and what led you to being a principal, but particularly being a principal working with children in an urban community. Yep, so I'm William Hayes, principal of Mastery High School of Camden. The school was founded in 2016 in Camden, New Jersey, so we are a Renaissance Partnership School. I'm originally from Hartsville, South Carolina, which is a very small town. It's far from urban at all. We're population 7,000, so I grew up in the rural South. I'm very proud of my upbringing there and carry many of those kind of Southern small town values with me in my work. I think the theme that kind of translates all of my work is just the diversity of experience that led me to this very point. So I grew up in a small town, Hartsville, South Carolina, went to undergrad at Morehouse College, a historically black college, all male in Atlanta, Georgia, went and got my master's at Harvard Graduate School of Education, taught in Boston, Massachusetts, and then was an assistant principal of a high school in Boston. Uh, Shout out to New Mission High School in Boston, Massachusetts. And then I went to become a principal in Cleveland, Ohio, a pre-K to eighth grade principal. So I've also worked with the babies and then came to start this high school in Camden, New Jersey. And so somewhere in that time, I also got my doctorate from Vanderbilt. So I've been a large number of diverse places. When you think about the colleges I've attended, the places I've worked, the types of schools I've worked in, I just kind of seen a great deal. And the theme around that has really been around working in places where people feel like the solutions are impossible. And that's really what drew me to urban education, particularly working with low-income students of color. I think that somehow we've created this barrier that all of the opportunities we say we want for kids and all of the accomplishments we want them to have are not possible. And so I'm just committed to this work to prove everything about that narrative wrong. Excellent. You already said a lot, even right there, that I could unpack. But you also said that you started this charter school. So what led you to that? I feel like that's not always everyone's mission to start a school. So what brought you to that particular point? To be clear, and I have to lead with this, because once people hear that you're a charter leader, it just creates like a camp. They're for you or against you, and nobody's in between. And in many cases, before I became a charter school leader, I was that person. Like, I was on the other side of the fence, like... Mm -hmm you know, down with charters, neighborhood schools. I want quality schools in my neighborhood. And I still believe that 100%. I think that very much has to do with the type of school that I chose to run. So we are a charter-run open enrollment public school. And so what that means is New Jersey has legislation by which the lowest performing districts in the state were required to come up with an initiative. And that response in Camden was a Renaissance partnership school. 
that typically means that students who live in my neighborhood have open right to attend the school. And so we do a blind enrollment in which I have no say over who gets admission into the school. If we have the seats, you live in the neighborhood, then you come to the school. And that has always been my commitment. I still believe that our communities, particularly communities of color, low income and urban, deserve quality schools in their neighborhood and they deserve those schools without barriers to entry. And so even in coming to work for a charter organization, my commitment was to work for that type of system. I didn't want to work in a system that pushed kids out, that said that you need to fit this very traditional mold of what it means to be quiet, sit still, and follow directions as we give them. Like that wasn't what I was signing up for. And so that's how I found myself in this particular place. It also came out of a sense of frustration. So I had worked in traditional public schools And the narrative around our public schools failing because people don't care is completely false. And it's not because people aren't working hard. I think it's because our system has so many challenges and barriers that require a complete overhaul. And so I actually left the traditional public schools because I was frustrated with the system itself. I still believed in it, but there were strings, there were bureaucracies, there were barriers that I was so frustrated by um, that I no longer wanted to be the face of kind of piecing together this thing in spite of the challenges. And I wanted to be in a place where I had some of the autonomies and some of the decision-making rights that I had been really wanting to have in school leadership. Excellent, excellent. And I want to also backtrack to, you talked about your undergrad and your college experiences. And your experiences were very diverse in terms of geography, space, and the culture. You know, you went to an HBCU for undergrad, but then you went to a PWI for graduate school. You were born and raised in the rural South, but now you're located in an urban environment. How do you feel like all of that sort of meshed together? Like, what sort of impact do you think all of that had on you and who you are as a leader today? It definitely prepared me in terms of the development of my own identity and my own self-awareness. I think we overlook the importance of educators just having a strong sense of self and who they are. And so even in my upbringing, just in the rural South, it's just family is value, right? Family is important. You don't have babysitters, that's your aunt who doesn't have a job right now. She's watching you. Grandma who's retired is the babysitter for all the grandkids. And so I grew up in a situation where family was of the utmost importance and togetherness and unity. And so it was never a question in my head, can Black people come together? Can we build our own systems that allow us to not only survive, but to thrive? Who do you call on when you lose a job or you lose housing? You call on family. And so that is my core and that's my upbringing. And so at every stage, I feel like I was developed to build a strong core that would prepare me for a profession in which all those things are brought to question, in which all those things have to be defended. And I'm in a seat of power to defend the right of black and brown people to have those entities and spaces to be held sacred and to be supported and protected. And so I think about my work as a principal and my upbringing and the family values created, I am a constant advocate for families and children. Like I don't speak about children without speaking about them as extensions of their families. I don't think about their education and their outcomes without thinking about how they will come back and support uh, the families that they have or the challenges they have in those families or how they are the hope and the pride of their families. And so my upbringing allows me to see a child not just as a single component of the school, but a larger part of a community and a family. That's home. And then Morehouse, you go to what appears to be the most monolithic group of classmates to have, right? And so it's an all-male, historically Black college in the South. 
And when I arrived at Morehouse, my mind was blown. I had never seen the diversity of just blackness. And that was important for me to see. It was important to me to see that these visions of what I thought I could be were not just in my head. These visions of what I thought was imaginary was actually real somewhere else and very much possible and within my reach. And so that was an important time for me just to explode my mind and expand my thought processes, not with what I thought was out there, but what I thought I personally as a Black man in this country could accomplish. And to even reflect on my own experience and think about all the things that I was missing and things that I hadn't experienced by the time I was 17 and entering into college. Others had seen and done and was a part of the regular routine. It really built my aspiration. I think the other thing is being in that particular space, it's the only time in which I did not have to negotiate whiteness. I was free to explore my blackness without the simultaneous consideration of whiteness. I didn't have to suppress this exploration phase. I could try this space of blackness without having to worry about how does this look in comparison to whiteness. And so it's not truly a space I appreciated while I was in it until I came out of it. And so I think that ability to test and try and explore your blackness in a safe space in which you are constantly affirmed is a gift that many of our students and children and people of color don't get to experience. I think that safe space to develop my own muscle to develop my own efficacy was necessary for the work that I'm doing today. Beautiful. Let me pull that out a little bit more. When I was in Chicago, I taught at an Afrocentric charter school. And you mentioned earlier about the debates of charter schools and a lot of people are on the fence. And particularly Afrocentric charter schools or African-centered charter schools are definitely in that pot as well. Because on one hand, culturally, they provide a lot of sort of benefits to Black students. But then on the other hand, there is a lot of political red tape. What are your thoughts about African-centered or Afrocentric charter schools, but the diminishing of them, as well as the sort of cultural and socio-emotional benefits they could have and impact they could have on Black children? Well, full transparency, I didn't even know Afrocentric charter schools existed until I left the rural South. I mean, that is actually quite intentional when you think about the lack of that in the South where it is so much needed. I think they are valid and I think they are necessary. I think that what I experienced at Morehouse is likened to what I've heard from friends who attended schools, Afrocentered schools in Philadelphia area, and what they were able to get out of that and the values they still leave are necessary. I think the challenge becomes, in full transparency, how do you play this political game? Like, I think that the core values of African-centered schools are to be true to who you are. The finances attached to that and the political capital attached to that require a negotiation of who you are. That's a contention that I get. Until we as Black people have Black dollars that don't require us to negotiate that politics, I feel like that is going to struggle because it's a deep commitment. Specifically, African-centered schools have a deep commitment to truly being our most authentic selves. And... How do we navigate a system in which our most authentic self does not get the dollars Mm. to sustain the system? How do we navigate a system when the things that we feel are most beneficial to our communities are not necessarily going to translate on the next year's assessments? And we can't, and those things aren't necessarily connected. Or it's a longer game, right? The work we're putting in with kids that are five, six, or seven, we know and we have seen that it's going to prove itself in grades nine and 10, but you want the quick results to get the dollar. It's 
how those schools and how many of our schools exist in a larger society of what people value and what mainstream sees as valuable, I think that's a constant contention that we'll have to navigate until we have Black investors that see yeah. value in it. That's it. Yeah, I agree. That was good. So how long have you been a principal right now? How long have you been in position? This is my eighth year as a principal, my fifth year in Camden. I was okay. a principal for three years in Cleveland. Okay. What are some of your major issues as a principal, as a school leader? What are some of the things that you are sort of battling with both on a macro and on a micro level, generally speaking, and then particularly with COVID right now? I know that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. So it's funny. No disrespect to any other position in education. I believe the principalship is single-handedly the hardest position in the field. I feel like teaching is the most important position in the field, but principalship is the hardest. And so when I became a principal that first year, the first thing I did was send an apology email to my previous principal that I worked for. And it was just a full-scale recognition of the weight of the principalship and how challenging it is and how many people you are beholden to and how lonely the position can be. And so the principal's job is to respond to so many different stakeholders. And in many cases, stakeholders want different things, stakeholders need different things, they require different things. And you need to manage all of that towards a multitude of goals. And so you are constantly- still trying to make everyone happy. (laughs) And smile, and you know, be pleasant and not have an attitude and don't be overwhelmed and don't take off and be responsive. Mm -hmm. And you are last in the lineup of care and concern. And that was very difficult. Like that recognition that a thousand people come before you in a school of 600, all of those kids come before you. In a school of 77 teachers, all of those teachers come before you. Your leadership team comes before you. And so you can wake up at eight o'clock and there are a thousand people waiting to see what you have to say or questions to feel towards you. And so the management of just people and time was like the first challenge. Like how do you manage and balance yourself while you are taking care of so many people? The other thing is that you are also beholden to a network and district that you work for, right? And so while I am in service to the people in my building and the families within my school, I work for an organization. And sometimes those goals don't necessarily align with what I believe and what I want or what families and what students believe in what they want. And so you're at the middle of negotiating all of that. So you can turn to the left and you need to respond to the district and the network in a specific way. And you can turn to the right and you need to respond to families and students and teachers and leaders in a specific way. And so like that constant balancing act was also like the next level of challenge. My position within the middle of this organization, service out to families and students, and then being an arm of the organization that I work for. So that's like high level systemic challenges of the principalship. I think the other challenges have really been around responding to the needs and gaps that come to the table through no fault of our children and families, right? I had to accept at some point that I was not going to change the world, but I could better prepare my students to do stuff. And that's hard because as a young principal, you want to fix everything. I want to march when my kids don't have a stop sign. I want to talk to the governor about the judicial system and juvenile courts. Like I was chasing all of these things that were causing issues within my school. 
And those are reckoning for me that I can't control all those things, but I can provide for my students to be able to better support them to navigate the world, not the world that they're going to enter, the world that they're in right now. And so preparing kids by way of ensuring that their social emotional needs are met first and foremost, to value that above their academic outcomes, to see their social emotional well-being as the foundation that is necessary for them to achieve academic outcomes and committing to that. And so it's really been trying to build a community that closes the gaps that have our marginalized communities experience through no fault of their own. So from a leadership standpoint or a management standpoint, how do you then stay focused on your own professional goals while still trying to ensure that the needs of the students are being met? How do you still stay focused on your goals? My personal goals are actually tied to the outcomes of my school. Like I never want to be a leader that is so great. I went and got a doctorate and he's on all of these podcasts and he's being recognized and I run a whack school. Don't be that person, right? Don't be the person that is doing so wonderful and your outcomes aren't there. And so I think that's the other thing that we don't often talk about. We need to support and develop students and build great comprehensive communities. And we need them to achieve academically. Like I never lose sight of that. My kids can't graduate and aren't fully prepared to accomplish what I have. If not more, then I haven't done my job. And so my success is tied to their outcomes. And so that's one. Two, I keep goals at the forefront. I'm unapologetic about the challenges and the goals. At my school, we have a statement, the difficult we do in a day, the impossible takes but one more planning meeting. And everybody knows I mean that, right? Don't give me all the problems and the challenges and we are not 100% committed to the goals. I think that when I first started, I used to allow people to bring the challenges of my students as excuses for why we can't accomplish the outcomes that we want. And so, yes, I have clear goals around academic outcomes at the end of the year. And no, you don't get to complain about all the gaps that a child experienced over the four years. Well, what are you going to do? Like, it is what it is. And let's move on. I do have goals around parent engagement and how we connect with our students and our families and how many times we do that, how often we do that. And all of my leaders know these goals, right? And so we lead at every meeting. You ask me, what do I think about that? We're on track, we're off track. And in the beginning of my leadership, I used to say, okay, let me take that problem and I'll think about it and come back with a solution. Now I tell people, don't bring me the problem without the solution. Because the sustainable leadership that is necessary is to build more leaders that can think creatively about solutions. And so in the beginning of the work, I felt like I was keeping all of the solutions in my head and I was responsible for all of this. I'm actually responsible for creating more leaders that can build this work. And that trickles down, that belief that the solutions we are looking for are not going to be in a savior that is out there to come and fix this. Mm -hmm. It's within the community of people that are committed to this. And so I am also very much committed to being unapologetic about the work and calling people when this isn't the work for you, right? Calling you out on the fact that you are a good person, you are well-intentioned, and this is not for you. And that is okay. Because what we are trying to build here requires a fundamentally different philosophy and commitment that you are not aligned with. I'm not upset about it. And I actually don't want to waste much more time to coach you towards it. It's a decision. Indeed, indeed. Let me tease that out a little bit. What sort of practices do you have in place around teacher development? But I'm particularly interested in culturally responsive teacher development or racial equity or racially centered teacher development. Is that one of your goals? Is that sort of a plan that you may have in place? How do you sort of nurture that sort of consciousness within teachers of color and white teachers? Yep. 
Love that you distinguish that. So I would say there's both network level support in terms of our onboarding of teachers, and then there's some things I do at my school. So our network has a commitment to cultural context, which is our quarterly training that teachers get. And so it's typically a two-hour professional development on some cultural context topic around race and gender equity. New teachers to the organization get two days of that. And then they get a quarterly kind of regular professional development around that essentially developed. Where that translates to my own school leadership, and sometimes I don't think we pay enough attention to the nuances of the ongoing cycle of professional development around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because it can't just be like a one-stop, come to this room and we talk about it. It has to be ongoing in my practice. And so that, for me, starts in the interview. It's in the questions I ask just to probe what you think and who you are. And I actually ask some pretty uncomfortable questions that are no longer uncomfortable for me. And I lean into that tension. And I think that when people get uncomfortable, particularly in interviews and in education, when it gets uncomfortable, we back off because we don't want it to be uncomfortable. I don't back off. I lean in. And if that is going to make you so uncomfortable, then guess what? And it's not even in a rude and disrespectful way. And in many cases, I actually want you to get comfortable enough to let a little racism slip out. Let me know your biases. Let's work through that. Let me think we're friends, we're good, we're comfortable. And then you slipped up and I'm like, oh. Yeah, so even in the interviews, I ask very specific questions. Not why you want to work in urban ed. Why do you want to work with poor, Black, and Latino students in Camden? Because there's a Philadelphia over there. There's a surrounding suburb here. There are schools that don't have the population of mine. And the country needs teachers. Why do you want to work here? In that question, I listen for a very specific commitment to these children that are in this school. And so that has to be the first step that you like and love the kids that you're going to be working with. And if there is hesitancy about that, then let's do ourselves a favor. Let's not play this game, right? This can't just be the check or the job because there are a lot of checks and jobs around. And so I don't want you here to do harm unconsciously because you actually don't fully commit to this particular mission. So I asked that question. I also asked the question, where do you think the achievement gap comes from? Where do you think it comes from? And why do you think it persists? And what do you think is the solution to closing the achievement gap? And in that question, I'm looking for who you place the blame on and who you see is responsible for the solution, right? If the entire thesis statement is that parents and kids aren't doing what they're supposed to, then we have a problem. You have no awareness of the systemic issues that led us to here. And you also don't see your responsibility as a teacher to close that gap. And those are things I don't want to teach. I don't. We've wasted too much time trying to convince people to care about kids, and we've wasted too much time trying to get people to understand that racism and structural racism is real. I need to start with a person who gets that. And that's in the interview. So we haven't even gotten out of the interview yet, and I'm screening for that. And then we do a demo lesson. And in that demo lesson, less about how you're teaching the thing, and I don't think people know this, I'm more invested in how you're connecting with the kids when you're doing the thing. Right? Lesson plan is beautiful, but you're scared to redirect this kid over here. Like, let's unpack why you didn't go to the black boy who was off task, who had his head down. Why didn't you talk about that? Or when John said the wrong answer, why did you just dismiss that? Why didn't you unpack the wrong answer? And so I'm actually just looking for how you relate to kids and how you connect to kids. 
did you ask them their names? Like, did you recognize that these are human beings? Did you stand in the corner until it was time to go? Or did you at least acknowledge that you were sharing a space with them? And those are the nuances of people's character. Because what I realized is in interviews, people are bringing their best self. They are most on guard. And so if a small thing slips out when you are most on guard, please believe that's the thing that I need to be cautious of or conscious of when you're hiring. And so I'm constantly looking for that commitment to social justice and equity in the interview. All right, so let me go in a little deeper with that. And let me talk about uh, students who may experience these multiple intersectionalities. So students who are Black, low income, but then also students who are Black and low income who may be homeless, or students who are even transgender, or students who speak different languages, students whose parents may be incarcerated or have experienced trauma, students who may be emotionally affected by racial violence and racial trauma. How do you address that? What's up? Tell me what you do about that. This is where you like get into stuff where I think that sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong, and then, you know, you deal with it. You learn and grow. The first thing that I make clear, and I think this is a message to all Black and Brown people working in urban ed, just because I'm Black and share the same skin color does not mean I have a clear understanding of all of the nuanced experiences of students. And therefore, I can't assert myself as the expert in the appropriate response and outcome to those experiences. And I'm careful with my kids in that way, in that I first want to acknowledge that what you are feeling and what you are experiencing is true. And you are the expert in that feeling and that experience. And I am not. I am a support for you in getting through that in coping with that and responding to that but I am not your expert in that. And so that's a different approach. It's a humble approach in my own leadership because when I have that approach, I seek understanding and not correction first. Mm -hmm. Seek to figure out where kids are and not just immediately try to get them to where I want them to be. And so there is some necessity in me diving in and understanding the trauma of my kids in a way that I didn't previously understand before it was brought to my plate. That's one. Two, I must also constantly seek that out. I must seek to know more about my kids. There was a point in time, so my school right now is 650 kids. Initially, it was meant to be 1,000 kids, and so they wanted the school to be much bigger. And I really fought tooth and nail for it to not get bigger because there is something lost when you don't, when you lose the ability to see kids and to know kids, to know them by name, to be able to connect and at least have a five-minute conversation that allows me to see, yo, how are you? What's going on with you? How can I help and assist? Because kids are not always going to be in line to readily provide that information. And in some cases, you need to probe and you need to pull that out and you need to have time and space to do so. And so our children have learned to hold things in. Our children have learned that my voice is not often going to be heard. And even when I thought it was heard, it's not going to translate into the outcomes that I want. And so in many cases, they've learned to be silent and they've learned to be helpless. And rightfully so. The world told them that their voice didn't matter. The outcomes that they experienced told them that what you say will not matter. And no matter how bad it is for you, it's not going to change. And so I understand when kids don't want to volunteer information because they don't trust. I understand when kids don't want to tell an adult something because they did that two years ago and the adult left, right? And so we have teachers in and out of buildings. And so I tell teachers all the time up front, why should a kid trust you? 
Everything about life suggests that they shouldn't trust you. And so that, that's your responsibility to build that trust and to build that rapport. We spend a lot of time, particularly around how we respond to trauma, is building relational trust first. Like give our kids safe people and safe spaces that they feel comfortable enough to share that. And then to equip the adults to be able to respond to it. There's nothing worse than a kid pouring out to you and you giving them nothing. You have nothing. That, that was a waste. You've unearthed the trauma and the hurt and the pain and you did nothing to heal it. And now Ooh. I'm just exposed. So I'm worse than I was before. And so I, I even caution our network and our leaders and professional development leaders, be cautious about who you send out to you know, dig in the trauma of our kids. You can actually do more damage by unearthing that and not being equipped to do something. It's a very nuanced approach that I take with kids. The other thing, particularly around our kids, I build a very honest community, right? And by honest community, I mean, there is both accountability to life and what life has in store for you when you graduate my high school, and what I'm willing to support right now, right? In example, anger is an emotion that you are allowed to have, and you can be right in your anger. And no, you are not responding appropriately or in the best fashion for the setting right now, but I need you to get there, right? I need you to be able to exercise and manage your anger. Because when you leave my school, the world is not going to respond to you in the same way. And so I'm very conscious and very nuanced in my language with kids about how this is now in this space and how this translates in a different space. And so the trauma that you are experiencing, and I'm honest about this, actually may not change. I think we lie to kids when we say things will get better and we do them unnecessary harm when we lie, right? You told, and that also severs the relational trust that we're building. You told me that this would get better. And in some cases, the most supportive I can be for kids is to tell them, this is not going to change, right? Black boy, how they view you in this country, I don't see it changing for the next 20 years. But how you respond to how they treat you is going to be absolutely important and integral to your outcome, right? And so I have those conversations with kids. And I encourage my teachers and leaders to have those honest dialogues with kids. I'm also honest about how I punish kids, right? And so I tell them, look, I'm going to let you get this one off on me. I'm going to let you get it. But don't come back. Like, don't play me. Please don't play me. What I got at Morehouse was a freedom to make mistakes, right? A freedom to do something or say something wrong and not be an indictment upon my character and not be an indictment upon my future. And so I want to grant my kids that same grace to learn that your response was not right in this moment. And I don't need to knock you back 10 steps to show that it's not right. And so there are times in which the question of like suspending and the oversuspension of black males, I mean, I've had to like consciously think about this will Black man, you got to a position of power where you actually get to decide if he's suspended or not. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I'm like, you know what? I'm going to drop a card on this one. Everything you did was wrong, but you know what? I understand the backstory behind that, and so this particular time, I'm going to grant you grace. I'll give a very quick example, which I think is still funny, and it speaks to like understanding kids. So we had, I had two kids before school, They got into a fight like three blocks up the street. The police had already come to the school to tell me that my kids had been fighting. Again, they always say, your kids were up the street fighting. 
And as the police is telling me, the two boys who had been fighting are coming to the school. Mind you, school hasn't started yet. It's still like breakfast time. And the kid says to the other kid, yo, I think you have my shirt. Mind you, they just started fighting. And so they can see the look on my face. They can see that I'm about to go off. I'm about to just go off in the worst way. And the kid stops and he's just like, yo, Hayes, I see it on your face already. I don't know what you want from us. We went up two blocks from the school, so we didn't embarrass you. We didn't video it. We took off our uniform shirts and we on time for school. Never mind the fight or that the fact that the police got involved. We're not gonna talk about that. <laughs> right. And so in that moment, I took a step back and I laughed a little bit. I said, you know what I want right now? I just want you to go into this school and get out of my face. Like, I'm going to come see you. Just go wait for me. Because it was like this mind warp of, like, this kid is actually, like, trying. And the best way he knows to try. And so there's a dangerous moment when you start to understand 16-year-old boys and you understand their conflict and you understand effort, right? I could be super mad that these two kids were fighting. And I am super mad. And I could also, in that same breath, realize that they had enough respect for the school to do it in a different location. They had enough respect for each other to realize that learning is important and essential. And Hayes wants us to be on time. So let's go be on time. And to be fully transparent, these were 10th graders, and they were not that in ninth grade, right? They weren't coming to school on time in ninth grade. They weren't considerate of their education and the school community. And so in that moment, while I'm mad, I'm simultaneously honoring and recognizing the growth of students. And that is what we have to do. We have to recognize and honor the growth of our students from point A to point B while granting them grace to develop and make mistakes along the way. That's beautiful, Dr. Hayes. And one thing that I hear in that and sort of your philosophy around disciplining and punishment and suspension, that there has to be an element of grace, an element of forgiveness, an element of understanding people where they are in their personal growth process. And consistency in that, right? And so there can be all exceptions because then there's rules, there's no order. And so there has to be some level of consistency. And for kids, it is hard when we leave discipline to be subjective, right? When we leave discipline to be at the whim of whoever caught you doing whatever you do. When we first took over the school, culture was a struggle. Like it it was a huge struggle particularly because kids just hadn't experienced a system like we have. And we have so many adults that are like constantly on you. And so it felt overwhelming for kids and they rebelled in many cases. But what I want to teach kids is to be responsible for your own actions and to know the rules and expectations. And so we actually posted our rules and we posted the consequences. And so kids would do something. And I was emotionally divested from like what they did. I was like, so go find the consequence. And I tell kids all the time, it actually ain't even that deep. You're going to have to eat this because you knew what you were doing when you did it, I, the first question I'm asked, like, you okay? Were you angry? Oh, you weren't. You knew that. You, girl, just, just go do what you got to do. You, you that. And I want kids to know, like, sometimes choices and consequences actually aren't complex and aren't complicated. And you have the agency to make choices and deal with the consequences. It's what adults do. I know you get a speeding ticket going down 95 if you're over 10 miles an hour, right? Right. And I know that if I slip in behind this car and drive 90, that's a choice I'm making. I can't be mad when I get pulled over for that. 
And I agree with that totally. But one thing that I even struggle with as an educator is this element of choice. Because a lot of times in the political debates, this issue of choice is one that gets conflated in different ways. Liberals sort of think of choice in one way, but then conservatives think of choice in another way. And sometimes I think that as educators, particularly as educators of color, we may struggle with this element of choice. Do people choose to make their own decisions or right decisions? What, how much of agency can we enact or are things sort of pressed upon us and we don't have any choices and we have to make the decisions based on survival and that may look however it may look to someone else? Yeah, so for me, it's really about getting kids to a place where they don't feel like their moves have to be controlled by someone else. When we first took over the school, classes were out of control. It was actually a sub, and they were classes out of control. I was like, what is wrong with y'all? And the kid said to me, she can't control us. Like, she's not controlling us. And in my head, I was like, what is it in life that makes you think that you have to be controlled? Right. So my fear is that we see these systems that are designed yeah. to control kids, and they permeate K-12 and kids never learn the ability to control themselves, manage themselves. Because and they're always looking for someone to control them. If they can't find someone to control them, the place that we have fully set up in our country to control you, yeah. you cannot control yourself, is the prison system. And yeah. so we built a K-12 system that doesn't give kids agency Ooh. and choice. Yeah. And it's also agency and choice that I remind adults we exercise our agency and choice in every way. I don't walk in my professional development and tell teachers how to sit in the professional development. Right? You decide how you're going to sit. I don't tell you how to study and prepare. You decide when you're going to chunk it, how you're going to find it. Why don't we give kids that space to figure out what works for them? And if today is the day that you don't want to follow this rule and you know that's the consequence, and you're still going to figure out a way to bounce back and, you know, get the outcomes that you want, so be it. My only rules are don't do harm to others and don't do harm to the environment. If this is a thing that you need to work through in yourself, yeah. go do that. Don't hurt or attack someone else in the process. Right. And so I think high school just provided me an opportunity to scale back some of those restrictions. Admittedly, I came to a charter network that was very rigid and... I mean, I was at a place in my professional career where I was like, I'm not doing that, not going to do that, not really with that. It became this goal of getting kids to a place developmentally where they are fully self-aware of how and who they are in this larger context of the world and have the ability to make choices with a full understanding of those consequences. Dr. Hayes, let's pivot a bit. Right now, at this very moment, there's a lot going on racially. A young woman, Breonna Taylor, was just murdered by the police. We all remember Ahmaud Arbery, who was killed. And then very recently in Minneapolis, just one or two days ago, a man was murdered by the police in a very similar way to Eric Garner. And I think about, as educators, how we think about this. And all on my social media, <laughs> Black people are, like, extremely angry. A lot of people are even making comments like, I don't want to have any apologetic conversations from white people. This ain't even about y'all. So one thing I think about, and I was just reading an article on teaching tolerance the other day, 
how can we promote anti-racist educators? How can we develop anti-racist ideology within white teachers? And I want to be very specific and intentional in framing those words in just that manner, simply because 80 to 90% of our public school teachers in America are white and particularly white females. And then I'm also thinking about the woman who called the police on the men in Central Park. And I'm just thinking about all of this. And someone also put a comment that said, but yet in a lot of schools, our Black children are lynched just in these very similar ways. So I want to pose that question to you. How as educators in this school, well, particularly school leaders, how can we promote anti-racism specifically within white educators? I have not verbalized how I feel about these incidents. I've actually like posted a few things and I'm not sure I've transitioned out of the anger phase. And yeah. so personal to me, when I'm angry, I kind of remain silent. Yeah. And I know right now, like even within my network and amongst like my staff, every white person wants to know what I'm thinking. And I'm really just pissed and angry. And I'm at a point where, you know, when like black people, it's cultural to us, like when we get angry and there's a conflict and the conflict involves our friends, friends, and we say to them, get your boy. Like, we are so angry. Get him. Right. Because if I say something, it's going to be a problem. And that is actually where I am with white people right now. I am where I am like, yo, y'all white people, get your boy. Like, this is a for real problem. Inherent in that is how I feel we need to hold educators accountable to anti-racism. I'm tired of getting you. Y'all who are so woke who are so committed, who are such great allies. Can I get a break? Can you get your girl? Can you have these conversations? And so what is missing in this anti-racism kind of conversation is the responsibility of white accountability in that work. I think by now, diversity, equity, and inclusion is so sexy and so great and so buzzword. Everybody knows the appropriate response, but you don't enact that. And when you do it in front of you know, your white counterparts, you don't check each other on it. And so I think we need rules and guidelines for how white people hold each other accountable to that, right? When I think about what happened to Floyd, cops watched. That is what makes me most angry. This man was murdered under the knee of a cop, surrounded by other cops with witnesses who were pleading for his life. And if I translate that to education, we have children who get harm done to them daily, surrounded by teachers who protect it and witness it. And don't say and anything. So it because, and everybody knows it's wrong, right? Yeah. There's no question of whether people know it's wrong. The question is whether I can be held accountable to it or what my personal outcomes will be as a result of my action. And so until the accountability measures change, until the responsibility changes, we won't see change. Everybody got all the information they need. I think that's what we're missing. People don't need more information. They need accountability structures. When we think about how Common Core rolled out, when they changed the standards of Common Core, they put money behind that. They changed the assessments, evaluation tools changed, calendars changed, curriculum changed. You can't say that you're committed to diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice, and your assessments don't change, your routines don't change, your evaluations don't change. That's the work. Everybody got the information. There's a choice to be made and there's a lack of accountability, but 
kind of going back to that point, I am of the point where I'm so frustrated by people who know what is right and wrong choosing to do wrong. That is not an information gap. That is an accountability gap. And you are not concerned about the response. And so I am where I'm just like, I need y'all to say something. Because if I say something, it's not going to come out. I also think about in Minnesota, and I was just reading this actually last night, the University of Minnesota actually severed their ties with the police department in Minneapolis. They were hiring the Minneapolis Police Department for graduation ceremonies, things of that sort. And so they canceled their contracts. I guess from a university's perspective, they don't want to pay this police department and essentially continue to support them given the incident that took place. So my question to you is, what role do institutions have then in addressing racism or promoting anti-racism? You know, I think this was a huge move by the University of Minnesota and one that should rightfully be celebrated and be, and be applauded. And that makes me think about what role do institutions, particularly educational institutions, uh, play in sort of addressing racism and addressing anti-racism from an institutional yep. standpoint. An institution is only as strong as the people who make it up. Whether that institution is comprised of 10 people, 100 people, 1,000, or 10,000 people. And, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, well, we're just a college. We're just a university. We're just a school. That doesn't have anything to do with us. We don't have anything to do with that. But this university said no. Even though we don't have anything to do with it, we are still going to address this, and this is how we're going to address it. This president of this university, she wrote a letter. She called them out and said that this is unacceptable. We are cutting the ties. It makes me think then, how can institutions develop this sort of philosophy, develop this approach where they say, well, yes, it doesn't have anything to do with us, but we're still going to do something about it. I think from an institutional standpoint, one, we allow people who run institutions to hide behind this institution. And so we're actually not talking about an institution. We're talking about the person who runs it. We're talking about the leadership of it. And I think the first step is to actually call out who are the people behind this institution, right? That's one. I also think about in the field of education in a classroom, when a kid doesn't know the answer or they're nervous, they don't raise their hand. But if you're trying to get information to know what kids know and understand, a teacher will do a cold call. I think it's necessary for us to start cold calling some of these organizations to figure out where they stand. And you don't get to just not answer. Your silence makes you complicit. And right now, I think we have a lot of organizations that are kind of hiding and hoping not to be called on. Because the answer will require you to be on one side or the other. You don't get to have a no comment in this era, right? And I think that is the point. Institutions need to say something. In this climate, I need to know where you stand. Because if you are not on my side, you are unsafe. It doesn't just mean that you are on the opposing side. If you are not on my side, it means that you are unsafe to me. Because we are learning that this isn't just a, a phase, right? Black and brown people are dying. Life or death. Like this man was suspected of forging checks and died. Breonna Taylor was just laying in her bed and died. Like this isn't a function of people just being upset. This is life or death. 
And so we need organizations to speak up and to say where you stand. And at this particular point, I'm not particularly, I want you to be on my side, but more importantly and most immediately, I just want to know where you stand. That's the challenge, particularly with the police. It's an organization that in theory is supposed to stand on the side of the people. But when I ask you where you stand and your actions demonstrate that you are not for the protection of this particular person, then I need to negotiate that very differently because your position is not safe in this particular moment. And I think that also speaks to this institutional piece. For me, I do 100% believe that there are good cops and I need those good cops to say something. I need you to speak up. I need you to be angry. I need you to post. I need you to go viral and say how wrong this is. I need those who are internal to the organization because yes, blue lives matter and blue lives need to speak up for black lives. I need to know that you are safe. And so this becomes important for institutions to speak about where you stand so you can assure me that I am safe when I am standing next to you. And that is what I'm waiting on. I am waiting on institutions to make it known what you feel is right or wrong and where you are. In it. Because right now, Black people are on edge. As I'm like processing this verbally for the first time, you feel unsafe. You are in a constant state of fight or flight. And so that is not okay. And that in and of itself is trauma. And until Black people can figure out where they are safe, we are not going to be okay. Yeah, that struck a nerve in me too, Dr. Hayes. Even just now, as you were talking, my eyes started getting teary-eyed because it exposes vulnerabilities, it exposes sensitivities, and it is a lot to unpack. Dr. Hayes, I want to thank you for being on my show. This was by far one of the most invigorating conversations I've had with an educator or school leader. And I really, really thank you for your transparency. I really thank you for your leadership. If our listeners want to stay in contact with you, how may they go about doing so? Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at Speak Hayes. You can also find me on Instagram at Speak Hayes as well. Okay. And Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S. Yes. Excellent. So thank you for being on my show today, Dr. Hayes. I really appreciate our conversation and I hope that we can stay in touch. Thank you so much. You have a great day.